Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard. My guest today is Sylvain Goucher, Director of Revenue Strategy at Babbel and founder of Gretchen's. On the podcast, I talk with Sylvain about the top subscription app insights you should be thinking about, how important cohorting is when looking at growth metrics, and why good advice can turn bad if you apply it at the wrong stage. Hey, Sylvain, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a long time coming. Hey, David, happy to be here. So you and I have been talking, gosh, since I started the podcast, like, when are you going to come on? When are you going to come on? And then finally, a couple of months ago, we started talking about maybe doing a little bit of an experimental episode. Uh, so for those of you listening, this is going to be really different than our typical typical podcast. Um, but Sylvan, in addition to working at Babbel, uh, does a thing called Growth Gems. And so today's episode is going to be all about growth gems you can learn from in 2023 and so I'm going to read off growth gems, and then Sylvan and I are going to discuss them. So very different. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I did want to hear a little bit about growth gems and kind of what you've been working on there and how you got started. I mean, you've been doing that for a long time, and I don't even know how you have the time to do all this. You work a full-time job. You read and listen to more content than I could ever hope to, to listen to. But I appreciate you doing it because your summaries are incredible. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, I, uh, so essentially I create the webinars, podcasts, talks that I see. So I subscribe to to everything I see and then I I listen to most of it and I mine, I extract the main insights and, and share that in a in a bi-weekly newsletter called uh, Growth Gems. So lots of curation, lots of listening and, and watching. Yeah, it's one of my go-to places. So for those of you listening, you should definitely subscribe to the newsletter. And then your Twitter feed's great too. You you know share quite a few gems on Twitter, so you kind of get little bite-sized uh, growth uh, gem snacks throughout the day. Um, so yeah, I really enjoy it. And then I mean, at some point, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on your work at Babbel. You know, you 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 know so much from your own personal experience. Uh, but today we're going to focus on on growth gems. So let's uh, let's kick it off. So we're going to go through strategy gems, retention gems, onboarding and activation gems, and then monetization gems. So let's kick it off with uh, strategy gems. So our first gem is from Andy Carvel, co-founder at Feature. And what he says is, your mobile growth stack and strategy depends on the stage you're at. For early stage, you want to take big swings that bring big results and allow the app to reach product market fit. You don't need sophisticated measurement or sophisticated A-B testing. For growth stage, you need to explore. You don't know where the big levers for scale are yet, and it's about discovering them. For mature or scaled stage apps, even incremental gains can be meaningful, so you want to focus more on monetization and subscription optimization. 
Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I wanted to, to start with this because it's kind of, you know, the foundation, uh, you hear a lot of people sharing advice, um, on, you know, what to do in which year and, but really a lot of the advice and a lot of the, the tactics depend on, on the growth stage you are at. Um, it's not always good to do, you know, AB testing. Sometimes you just don't have enough traffic. Um, if you're early stage, you should just, you know, test things and, and, and bigger things and, and not try to measure everything you need to, to go with your gut. So, uh, I wanted to share that just so that people, when they hear insights, they put things into context, uh, based on who shared them, what's their, you know, what's their job, what's the, the kind of company they work at, or if they're a vendor, what kind of companies they work with, um, just so that people keep that in mind when, when they hear it. So, uh, that's always something that I'd invite people to question is, is this good for my growth stage and for my, for my company? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you, you could almost like start, start tagging all your growth gems, you know, early, mid-stage, late stage, or applicable to all. I know on the podcast, I mean, I like we just had um, Osman from uh, Duolingo on the podcast. And it's like they're another, you know, late stage, huge company like Babbel. And, you know, some of the things that we discussed just just aren't applicable if you're if you're just starting out as, yeah. a, as a subscription app. And, um, but I, I try to, you know, ask those questions and frame it in a way of like, you know, this, is, this makes sense for this kind of company, but it, but it's hard to do that. So, so even the gems you share, the stuff we talk about on the podcast, you know, some of it sounds like, oh, this is amazing. Like I should definitely be doing this. But if you're one person or, you know, a really small team, if you haven't reached product market fit, like there, there's just so much to probably wait on versus like trying to like take every gem, every bit of advice, everything we talk about on the podcast and like implement it all at once. Yeah. I mean, there's a thousand things you can do to grow your app and your subscriptions. The the hardest thing almost is to select what to work on, right? Like the focus that you, that you decide for a specific period of time, like a quarter or a year. So, so yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's something we don't talk about enough uh, publicly. I mean, maybe I'm just not in like product management circles, uh, but even in 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 growth, you know, there's a prioritization framework. Like, what channel? And some of this we do talk about. Like, you know, if you're just getting started, Apple search ads is probably what you start with. Don't go all sophisticated with an MMP, and don't you know think you're going to crush it on Instagram ads or whatever. Like, start with the basics and grow from there. But it really is about prioritization. If you spend a month you know, getting all this infrastructure set up before you even have product market fit, like it's the wrong order. You know, you should be working on the app first. Uh, I think a lot of people just get caught up in, in trying to build, 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 build and, and get everything perfect when like really perfection is, is getting to that product market fit as quick as possible. Agreed. So the next gem is from Michael Berliner, Principal Product Manager at Masterclass. He says, a lot of times business health and growth can be at odds with each other because you can trade health for more growth. Looking at customer acquisition cost to LTV ratio in combination with revenue because it considers both health and growth. It also gives you a common reference across the whole business. Yeah, so we, we talk a lot about that LTV CAC uh, ratio and and it's something that's that's super important. He, he mentions also revenue because you can have the best LTV CAC ratio, but if things don't scale or if you just don't cannot get enough volume for a specific channel, then it's it's useless to have that good ratio. Um, and I did want to mention it because 
that's something to always keep in mind. Uh, first, you you know, the more you're going to increase that LTV, uh, the more room it's going to give you on uh, on the CAC and like the, your cost per acquisition that you can allow yourself. Um, but also because I think there's a discussion there that's about not having, not looking at just one ratio, potentially like each, each of your different channel might have a different LTV uh, CAC ratio. And so that's also something to keep in mind. Um, you can have a certain LTV that you've been used to because you've had a specific channel mix, but the way you introduce a new one, let's say with uh, less qualified inventory, everything changes. So you cannot continue as you were doing if you're introducing a bunch of new you know, people downloading the app that are not converting at the same pace and are not going to become paid users at the same pace either. Yeah. And, you know, we could probably revisit that first gem over and over and over again with each of these gems, but I think it also depends a lot on stage, right? You know, early on, you might think, you know, your LTV, but as you improve the product, I mean, the whole, you know, goal early on should be to continually improve the product. And so your kind of early retention rates, your early conversion rates and everything like that, you know, three, six months down the road, you may have to throw it all out the window because, You've improved the product so much. You've improved your paywall. You've improved your, improved your onboarding and activation um, that these numbers are going to be constantly yeah. changing. And so then constantly looking at them. And then, of course, again, early on, you don't have to be especially sophisticated. Like maybe your LTV is just a, you know, blend and you're not even looking at, you know, cohorted usage and things like that. You're just looking like. I put $1,000 in this week and then like by the end of the week, like $1,000 came out and that's, that's enough. Right. But then later on, it's like, well, Hey, if this cohort that I uh, acquired in Europe actually has a way lower LTV, like you need to know those things as you start to scale up spend, because you can get in trouble looking at your global LTV and then spending a bunch of money in, in certain countries where maybe they're not actually going to perform at that level. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you have the tooling, like, you know, in this case, let's say a revenue cat and you can look at the cohort, you can have that courted view. I think that's definitely the, the way to do it from the start, no matter what your stage is, because you cannot, you cannot trust what happened, you know, a, a while ago. And also LTV, like some people talk about LTV as the projected LTV, the estimate that you, uh, that you're making based on, on the historical uh, data that you have. Um, I like the way uh, you you look at it also at, at revenue cat with the realized LTV so that you know that's money in the bank. So you have to look back at the last six months, twelve months to understand the money that you got from a specific cohort. Um, but at least it's 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 real. It's not a projection yeah. where you might have messed up. You know your 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 calculation and and your estimate. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because based on the way revenue cat stores subscription data. This was actually way easier for us to do realize the LTV, which is why we shipped it first. I mean, we hope to do a predictive LTV, but at the end of the day, it really is probably a more useful number for a lot of people because it's hard for any app to get much out to spend money much ahead of that 60 to 90 day return on ad spend. So if you're if you're spending, you know, $100,000 a day, you know, some of these bigger apps or even $100,000 a month or even $10,000 a month, you need to get that money back in an expected amount of time in order to keep funding or you're just going deeper and deeper in debt for like some 
hope in the future that, that they're going to return that money. And so with realized LTV and the revenue cat charts, you can actually filter by, by, by uh, length of the segment you're looking at. So you can look at 30-day realized LTV, 60-day real, realized LTV, uh, three months, six months, 12 months. And so then you're actually looking at, okay, from this cohort who came in this day um, or week or month, you know, at 30 days, 60 days, three months, you know, how much have I actually made from them? And, and especially when you're, when you're looking at LTV versus CAC, that's the, the best way to look at it because that's going to tell you your cash flow. Cause it's easy to say, Oh, well, you know, the real LTV is going to be multiples of that. Cause you are going to retain customers for sometimes for years or even decades. Like we know LTV is going to grow from that, but from a cash flow management standpoint, you need to understand how much you're actually making. Yeah. I mean, in the end, you want to know how fast you're getting that money back. And then it's a business decision. Am I willing to spend more than that? And yeah, what that period yeah. should look like is depends on also your stage. If you're hyper growth, right. then, then maybe you're willing to make some sacrifices because you want, you want to get people in. But. All right. The next gem is from Nir Isle, a best-selling author of the book Hooked. The gem is the most important thing to realize is that in an early stage, engagement is more important than growth. If you don't nail engagement first, it will die down. Yeah. So I, I think you, you do want the, the growth you want at that early stage is enough people so that you understand what happens when you make changes. If you change your onboarding, if you change your pricing, you, you need to have some amount of volume of, of, of installs to be able to to keep improving. But you should not uh, you should not try and scale until until you've nailed that engagement and, and optimized you know things like uh, like your onboarding and and, and to some extent uh, pricing at least the, the big the big considerations when it comes to pricing and then then you can scale so so I think that that's something important to to keep in mind at the same time you can make the uh, opposite argument uh, saying that. You also want to know if people are willing to pay. So you don't want to have, you know, a free-for-all app and not know if at one point people will be willing to pay. You don't want to start scaling before you know if they're willing to pay, even if you have good engagement. So you, you, need, to, you need to think about both aspects, but, uh, but I like his point. Yeah, it's it's like there's constant chicken and egg problems in this industry, right? It's like you need traffic to figure out onboarding, but... Really, and, and this is another thing is like as as the app matures, you're going to be getting different sources of traffic. I mean, early on, you might get a lot of press or influencers or you know one very kind of specific type of traffic. And you, if you over optimize for that traffic uh, early on with doing all your onboarding optimization, price optimization, and everything else, well, again, like we were just talking about, you know. Uh, it, it goes out the window six months, 12 months later when you find new channels, when you add more value where maybe the price can increase. But but you got to like you, you got to take it as it comes and like uh, do some optimizations and 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 figure out what you can for the stage that you're in. Um, and, yeah, I think this is a, a great quote is that if engagement, I mean, if people aren't coming back to the app, you know, where's it going to go from there? Like retention's not going to be good. You're not building a real business if people aren't staying engaged. So it's a great, great one to keep an eye on. All right. The next gem is from Eric Seufert, analyst and strategy consultant at Heracles Media. When it comes to your paid versus organic and old versus new user ratios, extremes are not good. 
Yeah, I, I like this one. It's probably even you know more relevant for more mature apps and, and apps that are at the growth stage. But uh, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to to think about that. You you often hear apps that say we only do organic, we don't do paid. Uh, but there's there's a point where you have to do paid if you want to keep growing, if that's your choice, of course. Uh, and so you want to keep an eye on that paid organic ratio. You don't want it to skew too far one way or the uh, or the other. At the beginning, you do what you want, what you can, right? Like you'll get the downloads <laughs> yeah. wherever you want, wherever you can. But uh, it's something you want to be. You don't want to be too dependent on paid and too dependent, particularly on one specific channel. But at the same time, if you or you know, ninety percent organic. It means you're leaving money on the table somewhere. There has to be channels you can find similar users to the ones you're getting through organic. Um, and and when it comes to new and old users, that that's also a, something that depends on on your stage. But initially, you get a lot of of new users. That's that's how you grow. Um, but as your uh, retention improves and and you start you know keeping users for for years, like you mentioned, um, if you have uh, too many old users. Uh, it means you're not acquiring new ones. It means you're, you're missing out also on on something. Uh, so maybe you do want to change your app to to cater to these old users and and make sure you keep them in and, and keep them happy. But also you need to to think about how do I get you know new people in. Yeah, I believe this was actually from one of the the podcasts I did with Eric, and uh, it was. You know, I, I like. Yeah, I like his thinking on this, and and I think he expanded on it quite a bit more on the podcast. It's just that organic and paid traffic often performs very differently, and and you know some of what he's talked about over the years is that you know if early on all you're all you're bringing to the table is organic, and you, and and you look at your LTV to CAC, and you look at your retention rates, and you look at your conversion rates, and all this. And it's amazing. And then you go raise a bunch of money and like, okay, we're going to blow this app up and look at our numbers. And then you start spending and you realize, oh, wait, these users from these channels don't perform like the users were used to. And so I think he makes a really good point that if you're, if you really truly, yeah, I mean, there's apps like, you know, all trails have done incredibly well over time with SEO and other organic, but I believe even they, you know, have worked a lot on paid advertising as well. But, you know, if you think you're going to blow up, or, or, you know, you're VC funded and you need to blow up or, you know, if that's your goal, I think he makes a really good point that you, you really should start spending on paid acquisition earlier than maybe even you feel like you should, you know, probably before your onboarding. So all dialed in before the product is perfect and everything. It feels like, well, why am I, why should I waste money? The product, you know, has so much work left to do. And this is why. Is like you might not even realize the the work that needs to be done on the product until you start getting that mix of people yeah. coming into the app. And if your paid cohorts aren't going to perform as well as your organic cohorts, you need to know that sooner rather than later and either figure out how to blend both where, where your onboarding and activation and everything can satisfy both. Or, you know, Eric even talks a lot about personalization is asking the right questions and onboarding and then giving a personalized flow uh, so that you can capture kind of both those intent or all the different intents and all the different kind of um, segments that are coming into your app. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, there's that minimal, you know, minimum threshold of volume you need to to figure things out. So you know that's where paid can come in, Andy. But you you want you definitely want to have a sense of your unique economics for paid channels, um, you know, before you start dreaming bigger. Um, yeah. Even though as soon as you're going to try and scale whatever you were, you know, whatever 
cost of acquisition you had, you're going to have, you know, difficulties maintaining it. But yeah. that's another story. And it's, his point about new versus old is also really interesting too, because if you're if you're overly optimizing for already engaged users who know the product in certain ways, and you're not bringing in enough new users, you know, like you said, you're leaving money on the table, but you're also maybe iterating the product in a direction that's not going to attract the next hundred thousand subscribers. It's going to keep the existing hundred thousand or million or whatever happy. Um, but if you're going to grow, you got to figure out what those next growth levers are. All right. The next growth gem is from David Burson, head of product growth at Canva. Growth engineering is different from product engineering. A lot of the things you try won't work. You have to get comfortable with doing just enough engineering and moving fast. Once you get positive signals, you can productize it. Yeah, I think the so the, there's two points there. The the fact that you're going to fail at a lot of things when you when you try, you know, a crazy new idea for your onboarding or, or your payroll, a lot of it is not going to work, which can be frustrating. Uh, the other one is to work on that velocity and, and the output of your, your growth product team so that you keep, you know, shipping and 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 learn faster. Um, and that's where, uh, not to give another plug, but like that's where, uh, you know, sometimes the, the buy solution, let's say with a revenue cut or even and even some other things can be on, on the CRM lifecycle aspect. Uh, when you can use those things to test fast, before you know you have more work done on the on the engineering and it, it can really save a lot of time and, and increase your, your learning. So that testing velocity is very important. Um so you you should you should strive for that. Yeah, and that's a whole nother conversation that I, I do enjoy having as a as a <laughs> revenue cat employee about build versus buy, but it doesn't make a huge difference. You know, you know, uh, revenue cat, braze MMPs, like there's so many tools as a subscription app that you can use that are proven and, you know, have a ton of code and a lot of sophistication that would be really hard to replicate. And you can build all this yourself. Like none of it's like rocket science, like, you know, revenue cat, there's a lot of edge cases we've solved embrace. There's a lot of like flows and, you know, making it easy with web flows to, to manage all your campaigns and stuff like that. But it's not rocket science. What's rocket science is, is, building a great product. And the fact, I, I think is a really great point. The faster you can move doing that and the less you get in your own way, the more of your engineering time that can be focused on that experimentation, the growth experimentation, the product experimentation, all that kind of stuff, the better off you're going to be by just moving fast. Um, and I, I like too, how it says, you know, you're going to fail. Like <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, it's too often like we want to succeed in every, like we want everything to be perfect when we ship. But, you know, the reality of it is if you're not failing at some things, you're probably not moving fast enough. You're probably not trying enough new things. You're probably being too conservative if you're not, you know, rolling out some features that just don't land well or whatever. Yeah. And and I also think what, what he's saying is if you have a, a test or a hypothesis you want to you want to test and, and, and validate then you might be able to also reduce the scope just so that you can you can validate that faster. Maybe it's like on a specific segment. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's not a product change. Maybe you test something via CRM. Like it's what can you do to validate that hypothesis faster? Right. All right. The next gem is from Thomas Pettit, independent mobile growth consultants. Don't push monetization too hard. 
There's a natural tension between monetization, engagement, and virality. You need to find the right balance. Thinking only about revenue per user might increase revenue short term, but will have a negative effect on your user retention. Yeah, I mean, that's, I know we're going to talk about monetization, so I think it's important to, to keep in mind. Uh, monetization unlocks lots of things, uh, but it's always, everything is linked uh, from uh, retention to, to monetization to, to acquisition. But if you, if you push too hard toward one direction, um, you might also be uh, thinking too short term. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's a good point is bringing, you have to find that, that balance. Um, and, and that, that point of balance of the is might change depending on the vertical you're in. Um, if, you know, different apps might, might need different uh, balance in terms of monetization versus, versus retention. Yeah. And, and this is another one where I think sometimes the best thing is to Find a price, a fair price, what users think is fair. Even if you're leaving, even if it feels like you're leaving money on the table early on, it's like there's plenty of time to, to figure out that balance. But early on, finding a price and, and making sure people are willing to pay, validating that, that willingness to pay, and then look at how it impacts, impacts engagement. We, I had um, Melissa and Felix from an uh, app called PocPoc on uh, the podcast a few episodes back, and they talked about how they doubled their price and more than doubled their revenue. So not only did they retain the same number of conversions, they actually increased conversions on double the price. Um, but then they were looking at their data pretty soon after that, and they realized that it quickly started to tank retention, that th those cohorts who paid more weren't retaining. So you think, well, that's amazing monetization. You're making twice the amount of money. Of course, that's like great business. But it's exactly what Thomas was saying. It's like those things can very quickly add up and impact um, engagement. They can impact word of mouth. I mean, if if you feel if a, if a user, even if they're willing to pay, feels like it's a bad deal, maybe they're not going to tell their friend about it. It's like, oh, it's too expensive. Like, I like it, but I'm not going to tell that my friend to pay 50 bucks a month for whatever, you know? So, yeah, I, th I think it's great to just keep keep all those things in mind and, and figure out that balance. Yeah, I mean, it also shows that you, you want to keep an eye on the evolution of whatever you, you tested. Um, you cannot have that realization that you mentioned for the for the PopPuck app without looking back and seeing how those cohorts evolve. So that's that's something to keep in mind when, when you're testing those things. Yeah. All right, the next section we're going to touch on is uh, retention gems. So the first one, uh, again, from Thomas Pettit independent mobile growth consultant. When looking at retention for your subscription apps, segment your users based on their subscription status. So free users, trial lists, and paying users, and then re-engage them accordingly because your retention curves are going to look very different depending on subscription status. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you, you can, it's a, again, that idea of you cannot look at everything in aggregate. Uh, ideally you can, uh, you can have some kind of breakdown and, and the subscription status breakdown is, is very important because uh, maybe free users are not ready to commit right now to pay something and, and your subscribers are. But if you mix everyone together, you're not going to understand kind of the story uh, that's behind the, the user behavior. So those free stages for a subscription app, if, if you have a free trial, uh, free users, trial list and subscribers 
you, you need to separate uh, those three so that uh, you you have at least a, a decent understanding of what's happening for each cohort, and then and then you can go deeper for for each. But that's uh, yeah, that's that will be another another insight. Yeah. And, and this is one of those things that's tough to do. And another uh, little plug for Revenue Academy this is something, you know, I would never pay an engineer to like s- figure out cohorting and, and as a small app developer myself still, there's no way I'm going to figure out data warehouse and cohorting and all this kind of stuff. But with Revenue Cat, not only can you do a lot, some of this cohorting at, on our dashboard for, for revenue and looking at that, but then we push the subscription status via our integrations to um, mix panel, amplitude, segment, and, and even you can use our webhooks to create a custom, uh, send it to custom analytics stack. Uh, also Firebase, we send it there. So, so that's how you actually do this is that you, you, you know, again, it's not rocket science if you want to do it yourself, but um, you make sure that that subscription status is part of your analytics stack so that when you're looking at how your users behave, you can then cohort them and look at behavior by that status. And, it, you know, it's just, it's one of those things, unless you have taken the time to connect the tools or built it all out yourself, um, you just wouldn't even realize when you look at your aggregate numbers that these cohorts perform so differently. Yeah. It's particularly important when you start testing a uh, hypothesis right. on, on one specific group of users. If you want to refer users to keep coming back, uh, you cannot look at the aggregate uh, for all your users. Otherwise, you, you won't see anything. Yeah. All right. The next gem is from Matthew Weef, co-founder and CEO at PhotoRoom. Launching only a monthly plan first can help you see how people churn and talk to them in order to improve the product. Yeah, this was also a subclub uh, gem. I really like this one, especially when you're early stage, you have no idea what your retention is like, your subscriber retention, your user, uh, your usage retention. And so having that monthly plan um, is not going to be the probably the best Cash flow move. If you have an annual, a yearly, you know you're probably going to make more money upfront. But it's going to be harder to know if people keep uh, kind of confirming, you know, that they're still engaged. So that's that's the advantage with the monthly plan. Each month they tell you, yes, I'm still interested. They, they vote with their money in a sense. Um, and getting, you know, at least a, a few months of that, I think, can help a lot um, so that when you do launch your yearly plan, because I think you sh- should still do that at one point <laughs> or probably um, you, you can compare uh, and, and you, yeah, you have a solid understanding of, of what's happening. Yeah. This is one I'm personally struggling with a lot right now. I am working on an update to my weather app and I, I want to go all in and I want to just do all monthly or maybe just, you know, have the monthly be the like highlighted, um, plan on the paywall and then maybe have like an other plans button to, to get access to the annual. Um, but it's really tough because you, you probably are sacrificing a decent chunk of revenue now it, again, and I probably won't for this update to my app, um, since I do it on the side, like it's not, you know, my primary business, we're not funded, nothing like that. Uh, so I'm not going to get especially sophisticated, but you know, let's say, three or five or $10 a month versus the annual plan being so much more expensive. Um, you know, you, you might be surprised that the conversion difference in monthly versus annual, because it is such a lower, uh, commitment. Um, 
And then, you know, depending on how retention is and everything else, maybe, maybe I wouldn't be leaving a lot of money on the table. I don't know. Um, but it's so, it's such a, it's such a tough thing, you know, to balance the monetization side of things. But from a, from a feedback perspective, there's no better feedback than somebody actively choosing to, or, or I guess somewhat passively, but when they get that email every month, like, Hey, you're subscribing to weather up, you know, my weather app, for example, the fact that they don't choose to go unsubscribe is is like the best signal I could possibly get. And when you, you know, for, for product iteration, for really understanding those long-term retention patterns and everything else, with annual subscriptions, you can monitor the subscription status. So like in RevenueCat, we have a user retention chart. And at the end of the user retention chart is a hashed number that shows you the current status. So if you had a hundred people in a cohort and for the, for your annual subscription, and then the, the dash number is 70, you know that 30 people have already turned off auto renew. So you can get the signals earlier for your annual subscription, but there's just nothing like that monthly, you know, somebody actually choosing to say subscribed. And, and I, yeah, I, I, I'm torn myself if I'm going to do this, but I think if, you know, if you're mm. in a place where maybe the monetization isn't as directly important, you can sacrifice a little early monetization that the, the feedback cycle of a monthly subscription is just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I, I'm. It's also a business decision, right? It's do I need yeah. the uh, cash flow and 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 the money to reinvest in ads? If if you're running less ads, then maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you want to take you know more of your time uh, versus getting money now to to reinvest. So it depends your strategy and and your vision for for the app also. Yeah. All right. The next gem is from Anja Obermuller, head of digital marketing at RBI. Even though the retention metric is what you want to optimize on, it's not tangible enough for optimization. You need a proxy metric that corresponds to an essential activity and that also correlates with retention. Yeah, I mean, you you want to, you can, it's very hard to impact uh, like the tail end of, of retention or, or to to measure the impact of a specific initiative on it. Um, and so you, you can try and find the, the patterns uh, earlier on, so that you can find some kind of some kind of proxy. Uh, it can be you know number of shows watched in the first week or something. So you want to do that uh, regression analysis to to understand okay what are the early indicators of someone that is going to not only subscribe but also you know stay stay subscribed. Um, and then you want to optimize for that for that proxy. It's not perfect. That's why it's called a proxy. But um, yeah. it's kind of you know the only way to to yeah to to impact the tail end of retention yeah and th this is this is kind of the solution to the dilemma i was uh, having in our in the last gem of you know do you do monthly or do you do annual is that if you do annual and you're not getting the feedback as quickly as you would with a monthly subscription as far as people staying subscribed and really understanding your kind of retention curve um this is where with an annual subscription figuring out these proxy metrics is incredibly important. Yes, you can look at at people who turned off auto renew, but that doesn't tell you how many are going to turn off auto renew once they get that email, you know, right before the subscription renews at at the end of of that first year. Uh, and so these proxy metrics and and it, it's tough too finding proxy metrics because 
for sub- subscription apps just don't work the way like a Facebook does, you know, th- for them, it's like they really need daily active usage or at least monthly active usage for a subscription app. You know, I, I use this example a ton. Um, Visco is a great photo editing app. You know, I don't use it every day. I don't even use it every month. I use it when I take photos that I really care about and want them to look their best. And so I probably, you know, break some of their proxy metrics because I don't look like a great user, but I'm never going to unsubscribe. Like that's my go-to photo editing Mm. app. Um, So these proxy metrics are really tricky, but if you can find one that really solidly works, it's like what we were talking about for a monthly subscription is that you can just get the feedback cycle shortened so that when you experiment, you get a quicker result and you better understand how it's potentially going to impact the long-term metrics. Yeah. And then you want to keep, you know, looking back is, is my yeah. advice uh, in case you messed up your proxy metric and it's not what you should yeah. be optimizing for. So, Yeah, totally. All right. The next gem is from Patrick Campbell, CEO of ProfitWell. We have a misconception when it comes to retention. We think it's only solved through providing value to the customer. This is incomplete. If you think about value only, you're spending all your efforts on the end parts of the value spectrum, strategic retention, and forgetting what's in between, the tactical retention zone. Yeah, I like that one because it's kind of a different perspective on everything we've been talking about. We're talking about usage, about subscriber retention, and and kind of uh, users evaluating each month that they want to keep using your your app. Um, But this talks about kind of the the technical aspect of it. Like what about your, your failed payments? Uh, what about, um, you know, credit card that, that changes new devices and, and all of that. And like, there's this whole area of involuntary churn that luckily a lot of the, like the app stores have, have started tackling pretty, uh, pretty seriously with the grace period, uh, the way uh, Apple keeps trying to, to bill, uh, not forever, but they, they really insist. Um, but especially if you if you have a web funnel, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you are most likely losing losing some money through involuntary churn. Yeah, this is a good challenge to my thinking. I mean, I'm I very much lately have been on that value, value, value side of things of like you know build a better app, you know deliver more value to users, and and and. I'm right in kind of preaching that between the podcast and tweets and everything else. But this is a good reminder that you can't just do that. Like you still need to, you know, have a CRM and send drip messages. You need to, you know, if, if, if there's a natural way to do it and it's part of your product, your request push access, and then actually be sending those retentive pushes. And, you know, there, there's so much, beyond just creating value that you can do tactically to improve retention. And, um, you know, when I get in my value, value, value mindset, it's easy to kind of leave some of that off the table and, and overly focus on the value side of things. So I thought this was a really good gem for kind of bringing me back into reality of, Hey, there's still a lot of tactical stuff you can do. Yeah. I'd say the, the growth stage here matters a lot, right? Like if it's hundred dollar involuntary churn because you're a small app, it's completely different as if you know it is uh, like one million involuntary churn. So there's there's a point at which it's it starts being valuable to look at that. If not, if you're early stage, you have less revenue. You know, turn on grace period, turn on you know whatever 
Apple and Google come up with, but but once you start getting bigger, some of those small things matter. All right, the next section is top gems, onboarding and activation. Uh, first one is from Thomas Pettit again. Lots, lots from Thomas in our, uh, our top gems here. Uh, he's an independent mo- mobile growth consultant. If you're early stage, don't A-B test. Be radical and make the change directly. If making If it makes a difference, you'll see it. Yeah, I don't know how much people I've heard that, uh, but for me that was that was very important to hear. Um, well, we work at Babel, so we have lots of volume. It's much easier to to A/B test things. Um, but when you're getting started, you you don't have that luxury. And I've I've seen several developers say, "Oh, I'm going to A/B test that," um, and you're probably losing your time. You're not going to get to statistical significance, uh, and you won't know if you want if you got five percent or ten percent win. You like you can't trust it. So. Just do the change, skip your entire traffic, look, do a more of a pre-post analysis and, and see if something changed. If it didn't, you, you probably didn't impact things enough. Um, and, and yeah, I think that that's something to keep in mind. And just to make the transition from retention, something I, I wanted to mention uh, as a side note is like there's no better way to improve retention than to improve your onboarding. Onboarding is going to be your, bigger, your biggest lever. Uh, and so that's, you know, as you make those changes, you're going to impact your retention much more than much more than you think. So, also something to keep in mind when we say do that pre-post analysis. Look at how those cohorts behave over time. Yeah, and this gets back to a lot of what we've been talking about, especially stage related. Is that early on, you know, trying to get super sophisticated about A/B testing? It, it's not just that you can't be confident in the results. It's that it can be a lot of work, even with tools, to get this set up and then to feature flag and, you know, be able to revert and like all those kind of things. It, it can be a lot of engineering to do that. Um, and, and then there's also kind of a, a, you know, company strategy, you know, uh, we talked about this on the podcast with, with Duolingo is that they, as a company have chosen a very deliberate, we're going to like A-B test everything, but not every app has to be that, you know, you can take a different approach, especially early on. You don't have to try and emulate these late stage apps or even emulate their kind of testing culture. So when you're, especially when you're super early and those engineering resources and time are precious, A-B testing probably isn't the best use of that. And I, I love what, you know, the way Thomas framed it here, it's just be radical, make a big change. Yeah. And if you make a big change and it has a big result, you'll see it. If it doesn't, you won't. If it's negative, you know, do, you know, do have a way to quickly get an app update out to, to revert that change. Um, but, you know, you don't have to be as sophisticated as, a, as some of these biggest apps in the world in order to grow and find product market fit. Yeah. And just also at the beginning, you, you won't be able to test everything, like you said, or you shouldn't. So just put your best foot forward. It's okay to copy, to adapt a little bit from, from some of the top apps you see, and then make those bigger changes to see what, what's happening. Yeah. All right. The next gem is from Darius Morovich, CMO at Reflectly. Think about the onboarding as a separate product. There is so much value to be to be derived from optimizing the onboarding. You don't want to just put together a couple of screens while you over-engineer the rest of the product. Yeah, I, we were talking about that engagement, right? Nail the engagement, and and but but that onboarding, like I was saying, it's it's the biggest retention lever. So you want to 
you want to really work on it. Uh, you don't want it to be an afterthought. It's it's how you're going to guide users and and kind of convince them that there's value and and you and you're going to solve their problem. So it's it's its own feature. Don't don't think feature first. Think onboarding first, and 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 you'll figure out the the rest from there. Yeah, this is this is one of those tough ones. I mean, I can't tell you how many apps I've downloaded over the years that just have like three pages where where they basically like are the screenshots from the app store. <laughs> like they just kind of like advertise the app. And, um, you know, for some apps, maybe that works, right? Is like, it is kind of marketing-ish, but maybe you're really kind of selling the value prop and, and maybe that can work. But I think too often people just default to what they've seen in other apps, you know, health and fitness apps, you know, some apps will have this 60 page onboarding, like every other health and fitness app, but not know why they're doing it for their product. So this goes back to what you're saying. It's like, yeah, maybe you copy that initially, but then figure it out. Like, how is it actually performing for your app? Are you really actually adding value by having all these extra steps? Um, you know, there, there's just so much to onboarding that, that I, I love the way it's phrased. It's like, think of it as a product, you know, don't just look at it as like a path to the product. It's like a product in and of itself to introduce you to the the value you're getting. And, and it, it's just too often overlooked in, in, you know, trying to build the best product and just forgetting about the onboarding. All right. The next uh, gem is from Leon Sasson, co-founder of and COO of Rise Science. The job of onboarding is never to show people how to use the app. If you need a tutorial, it's too complicated. People want to know how your product affects their lives and why they should care about it. It's education and convincing. Yeah. I mean, they, they showed interest because they downloaded your app. And so then now it's about, it's what I was saying, right? Convincing them, educating them about you, you made the right choice. Um, and if they didn't make the right choices, that's okay. Maybe that they're not the right fit for, for you, but you, you should should try to to convince them. And to go back to to what you were saying, you know, Rise is more in the motivation, self-improvement space. Uh, and, and so more screens might make more sense to to explain to you because you, you're not going to to want the, the result of feeling better because you've slept better might come in a week, in two weeks, in three weeks, uh, depending on how much you how fast you adapt. You don't have that time for users to get you know, to, to be convinced. So you need to convince them during the onboarding so that they stick with the initial experience and, and eventually experience that, uh, that value add. So you need to talk about the value add instead of showing the value add versus some other apps where maybe it's much, it's much better to make something that's much, sh- you know, that much shorter. You were talking, we, we had the gem from photo room. You have a way to show right, you know, in the first few screens, the value add of the app because it's more of a utility app and let's say you remove a background that's easy to to show so your onboarding can be very short but the the further down the road the added value can be experienced by the user the more you need to do that initial convincing and that's where most screens you know can be much better yeah and that's where i think you know really understanding the intent of onboarding comes in and you know what you're trying to do in onboarding is nurture that intent. Somebody downloads your app because they want to solve a problem. I think the reason, and, and this is where I don't, I don't know if enough people, when they're just copying the onboarding from, let's say, a health and fitness app, 
like, oh, okay, I'm going to do 60 pages because that's what, you know, Noom does or whatever. But why does Noom do, do, do that? Why does it work? And it, it's that, and Leon talked about this, this, this uh, gem was from the Subclub podcast where I was interviewing him and he talked about this a little bit more is that, you know, they experimented a ton with the Rise uh, sleep app uh, onboarding and they really work to kind of nurture that intent coming in toward the, the, the paywall and toward, you know, getting people to actually use the app. And so why does it work for a fitness app is that they come in with really high intent and each step along the way, oh, wow, they're asking me for my weight and my height and what, you know, equipment I have around the house and, you know, what kind of style of workouts are like, wow, they're like, they're going to build me a really optimal, you know, fitness plan or weight loss plan or whatever. And so those long flows are actually helping to nurture intent. But, you know, photo room is a great example. If, if photo room like had a, even a 10 page onboarding, the real value of the app is to remove the background of the photo and help you, you know, create better product photos for your Shopify shop or whatever. And like, if they needed 10 pages to like nurture that intent, like they're, they're going to lose a lot of people, you know, explaining the product, teaching you how to do it, all this kind of stuff. And so that's where like figuring out what intent people are coming into your app with and then how the onboarding nurtures that intent versus kind of getting in the way of that intent. So if you came in the photo room, like I just want to remove a background and you give them, you know, 10 pages of onboarding, you're losing the intent. They're, they're dropping out, but it just works different for different intent, different level of intent. If people are coming into your app with really low intent, you know, it's not that they're going to like change their life and lose weight and get fit or whatever. That's part of why this works for the fitness space. So if people are coming into your app with low intent, you, you really got to think about things differently and copying some of that's not going to work as, as, as well as you think it might. Yeah. And all those apps, they experimented their way to whatever onboarding they have. Um, right. And so, and, and you don't know if, you know, every two, three months, six months, they, they don't do a check for something that goes in the opposite direction. So anyway, you, you want to experiment your way to that. Um, but what, what I liked in what Leon says is it, in the end, whether your onboarding is going to be short because you get people to experience really the, the background removal or it's long because you need to sell them on the idea. It's still about convincing them. And so it's for you to figure out what's the best way to convince them. Right. All right. The next gem is also from Leon, co-founder and CEO at Rise Science. Having counter metrics is helpful so you don't lose something in one direction that ends up hurting somewhere else. Unfortunately, a lot of funnel optimizations end up like that. For example, increasing trials, but hurting long-term retention. Yeah, that's a classic mistake. I'm sure you, you've mentioned it lots on the, on the Subclub podcast, but it, everything's linked. So you, you cannot be, you know, have your, um, have your vision too narrowed on, on a specific step. Uh, you're going to see drop-off on a specific test. You, you cannot optimize the shit out of it and, and think that everything's going to be to be okay. So those counter metrics uh, are always important. Uh, always look at revenue first, but uh, even on, on the retention side, on whatever your um, retention proxy is, you want to keep an eye on, on all of these when you're making those, those optimizations. Yeah. And, and, you know, something we've talked about a lot, cohort, 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 is that, yeah. you know, it's really hard to understand how, 
changes truly impact your product unless you're actually cohorting um, and looking at those different cohorts over time. And again, you don't have to always be especially uh, sophisticated about it. I mean, your cohort could be one week you release, and, and this is what Darius uh, from Reflectly talked a lot about in the podcast we did with him, is they would have a weekly cadence. So like every seven days, they would release an update and change something big. And they would look at the seven prior days of, of performance and they'd look at the next seven days of performance. So that's a way to cohort. Um, but of course, optimally, you can slice and dice and get a little more detailed into the cohorting, depending on the stage and the sophistication of, of your setup. All right, the next gem is from Ethan Gar, growth trainer and coach. Don't jump into tactics. Putting a countdown timer on your onboarding because someone else did it isn't the answer to your onboarding issues. It's about experimenting into it. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess that's what I said just earlier. You, you don't copy a tactic or something that you see, whether it's 60, 60 screens or on or agency tactic. You, you want to experiment your way to it. There's most likely a reason some of these apps do that. Maybe it will work for you, but if you just copy it, it you know, it might not. I, you can say the same things probably with the um, the Blinkist free trial uh, that is now now so famous. It, it might work very well for your app, um, but if it works very well for your app, it's probably for a specific reason, which is the users were not understanding correctly how that free trial is going to work. It doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody, but um, I think it's more valuable to figure out the ways you can learn so that you experiment your way to to a tactic uh, or a test rather than take the test from someone else and, and copy it. Yeah. It's, it's always so hard to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And in talking to so many subscription app developers, you know, on the podcast over the last two years, and then in private, I do office hours weekly where I talk one-on-one -on -one with, with teams or individual developers and, at conferences and, you know, you and I, Sylvan, you know, talking offline, it's shocking sometimes that things that seem like a home run that just don't work for a certain app, you know, in certain contexts, in certain growth stages and certain, you know, there's just so much context to why some things work and some things don't. Um, but to your point earlier, I think, you know, early on, you do just kind of have to go on some gut instinct. Like, I think this is going to work and, you know, try and find some of the, the better kind of um, industry standards. You know, some of them are industry standard for a reason. Um, but don't just look at the tactic, try and understand why the tactic was working, try and understand the why behind the tactic, at least understand that before you try it in your app. And then, you know, as you're able to experiment as you move forward. All right, the next gem is from Marissa, senior designer at Feature. Onboarding starts with acquisition. A lot of onboarding problems come from a misalignment between promises made or expectations on the user acquisition side. Ensure continuity by delivering on the expectations that are set in the app stores. Yeah, I wanted to give that perspective because we were talking about the onboarding. So, you know, we were talking about what, have to, what happens after you download the app, but whatever happens before is also very important. They've seen a specific creative now with custom product pages, they've seen a specific app store listing or, or screenshots. And then if, if they get in the app and, and there's a disconnect, you might just lose users that have shown very strong interest and, and have gone all the way to the, 
to the point of downloading the app. So you, you want to keep you want to keep all of that in mind, that entire customer journey. Um, so it, it can be you know at the the simplest way is to kind of reiterate the promise that you're doing, you know, that you're making in the creative, in the app store listing, and and have that in during onboarding, and of course deliver after with the with the product. Um, but yeah, I think that's something to to keep in mind. You can have the best onboarding if if there's a strong disconnect with what you have on the app stores, you're first probably missing out on users, but also you you create that drop off after people download. Yeah, this is one of those where ATT really threw a wrench in the works. <laughs> and I mean, I'm I'm aligned with the you know idea of ATT that tracking on mobile devices was rampant and really unethical, like how far some companies took it, aggregating user location data and everything else like that. But from a privacy perspective, the fact that you saw this ad and downloaded that app isn't especially privacy violating. And boy, you know, was it an incredible tool to be able to help with this. It's like, okay, they saw this ad. And so they're coming in with very specific expectations. And so we're going to deliver on those expectations. So in a post ATT world, this is a lot more challenging to do. Um, you know, Sylvain mentioned custom product pages. Those, those can help if you're sending uh, a specific set of ads to a specific custom product page. I believe you can actually get that in the app once they've opened the app. Um, and so there's ways to, and then I know with uh, app store search ads, um, you can get um, the, the keyword that, that targeted the download. And so there are ways to kind of uh, help figure out intent. And, it, and again, this is all very sophisticated stuff that you don't want to do until you're, you're much further along. You don't want to be doing this at the you know MVP stage with your app, but you know as you grow and experiment with more channels and experiment with different marketing messages and everything like that, there are still ways to do this. It's just gotten harder and harder. Yeah, I mean for us at the ad group level, you can you can target. So I think if you are running campaigns uh, with a significant budget, that's definitely something you you should try and do. And then if you find ways, it's not it's not straightforward. If you find ways yeah. to continue that into the app experience or have someone boarding that allows you to, to kind of triage people at that point and, and provide different experiences if you have really different value props. So again, this is this is particularly relevant if you have an app, you know, if you take an, a headspace, you know, with, now they have sleep and they have uh, walking meditation. And, and so some people might not come just for meditation. Some people might come more for the sport aspect, for the sleep aspect. And so if you can triage at that point and provide a, a relevant onboarding that matches the customer, the custom product pitches, that's definitely a bonus. Yeah. And that's where, you know, we were just in, in previous gems talking about not making it really long onboarding. But if you ask a question, you know, are you coming to this fitness app to lose weight, to build muscle, to get stronger, you know, those are really valid things to add, especially if you can then back it up with additional customization along the way. But yeah, it's it, it's always a trade-off because, you know, inserting that into your onboarding, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a quick enough scan and the buttons are big enough and it doesn't create a lot of drop-off. So if you, if you can do some of that filtering and onboarding, it helps uh, figure out this intent so you can better align things. 
Yeah, you'd be surprised at how little drop off some of those additional screens can can bring sometimes. So I wouldn't I wouldn't restrain too much from testing these kind of things. All right. So the next section of gems has to do with monetization. And the first one is from Giancarlo Musetti, growth product manager at Burner. Use surveying to understand what features you should put behind a paywall. You can also use surveys to know how much they're willing to pay. Two models you can use are from Gabor Granger and Vin Westendorp. Yeah. First, I always forget the, the two names, so it's always good to have that written somewhere. Uh, but, but yeah, talking to those uh, users early on, it can be on one-on-one, it can be using surveys. It's, it's super important to get a sense of how much you should, you should price. Uh, too many people underprice, especially developers, uh, so be, be careful about that. You can copy other people's prices. Uh, you can run surveys. Uh, in the end, my recommendation is as soon as you have enough volume coming in, you want to A-B test because people will not always tell you the truth. So those methods are very useful. They can help you get a first sense of what people are willing to pay for so that you can actually test if, if that happens. Uh, so just keep those with a grain of salt. Yeah, and th- this is a, I, I like this gem a lot because it it kind of validates a lot of the other things we've been talking about is that yes, you know, getting super sophisticated with price testing or super sophisticated with AB testing and all this other stuff can sometimes kind of waste engineering time early on when you should be focused on other things. But guess what? You can actually just use surveys and yeah, you need to take them with somewhat of a grain of salt and maybe it's optimal to go ahead and, um, run the test once you've done the survey. But if you're early stage, you need to be talking to users and it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, it's not infrastructure heavy. It's not time intensive. You can send emails, you know, with revenue cat, you can even hook up our web, uh, web hooks to Zapier and send uh, cancellation surveys. We have a blog post all about that. So, you know, surveys are very low overhead to run and can be incredibly valuable, especially when you are less sophisticated in some of these other uh, methodologies. So, you know, if you haven't figured out your price, yeah, if you're, you know, have a lot of engineering resources or, you know, you could use revenue cap price testing or there's other things to do, but sometimes it's better just send a survey and talk to your users and like really understand what they're thinking. And then sometimes this kind of qualitative data versus just looking at the numbers and just doing A-B testing is actually going to help you understand the psychology of it even better. Is that when people say they're willing to pay X, why are they willing to pay X? And you can uncover a lot of that through surveys. So, you know, Giancarlo is at Burner, which actually has a ton of volume. And they're one of the the companies that does a ton of A-B testing. Um, and yet they still do a lot of this kind of user surveying and talking to users because of how valuable it is for context and to get at things you can't always see in the data. Yeah, and you can you can also, before building, you can have this pricing discussion. I think that's also something to, to keep in mind. Uh, the product market fit is good, but you want to include pricing in the mix because... Of, of the point we were talking about earlier, you want a business model that works. So you can also kind of build your feature around what people are willing to pay for and, and you can decide what you put behind a paywall and what you don't. So there's no, I don't think there's a point too early to have this pricing discussion with 
with potential users. Yeah. All right. The next gem is from Jake Moore, co-founder at Superwall. Almost all app companies do not focus on a very important metric, the percentage of users seeing the paywall. Yeah. I mean, that was in a, in a revenue cat webinar, if I, if I remember correctly. And I think that that's super important. Like just go into your amplitude, your mix panel, look at how many times people see your paywall and, and start monitoring that uh, because a lot of apps make it difficult for people to pay them. Like you need to go into the settings and, and start the subscription. So it's that the number of people impressions is, is super important. It doesn't mean you need to go extreme. You can, but you know, and that's kind of what Jake advises a, a lot of the time, just kind of lock your app to see if people are willing to pay you. You can do that. Um, but what you cannot do is, you know, ignore that, that metric. Uh, so you want it to be a decision, not some, not, not a blind spot. Yeah. This is one of my recent favorite topics because it's something I've really evolved in my thinking on. So for, for a long time, I talked about being too aggressive with your paywall and, and framed it in a very negative light. And in talking to Jake and talking to a lot of other developers, um, I've really changed my thinking on this. And um, Jacob actually highlighted it really well. This should be a gem, uh, Sylvan, for, for your next uh, gem roundup, is that on the last podcast where Jacob and I were talking about um, the, the Revenue Cat benchmark report, he made some really good points around, you know, for most apps, when you look at our benchmarks, only on me- the median download to pay um, rate is somewhere around 3%. So like 97% of the people who ever open your app aren't going to pay you a thing. And when you, when you realize that and frame it that way, um, then you start to think, well, you know, and, and this is what Jacob said. He's like, you're not going to ruin their life showing them a paywall. right? Yeah. And, and then at the end of the day, I've also started to think about paywalls and, and, you know, you can be over aggressive. You can show it in the wrong context. You can, you know, some people experiment with showing it on launch. And if it delays people getting into the app and doing what they're expecting, like you can create negative experiences that do detract from your product with your paywall. But on the flip side, you know, I made the analogy of, of you know, going to a store without prices. Like you, you it's really uncomfortable. It's like you, you want to know if something's going to cost and you want to kind of know how much it costs. And so you may cause some level of churn showing a paywall, but you're probably churning out the users who are never going to pay anyway. But this is where you have to figure out the right balance and, you know, where you can create these bad experiences. And if, if you have somebody coming into the app with super low intent and you show them a paywall that shows a hundred dollars a year, you know, you may turn them out forever when you could have nurtured that intent a little further along before you show them the paywall that shows a hundred dollars. So it's not like exclusively like show your paywall as frequently as you possibly can and hammer people over the head with it and show it every time the app launches and every time they do this and every time they do that, it's not about that. It's just about being more strategic and not always framing it as a negative thing thinking about it as a good customer experience for them to understand that there is, there are premium features that this is yeah. potentially going to cost something. Yeah. You're also being straightforward with the fact that there are features behind a paywall from the start. And instead of them discovering later that, 
oh, you know, I've invested time in, in this app, but turns out I need to pay to move forward. At least you're being straightforward from the start. Um, so that can be a, a benefit also. And and we call them paywalls, but a majority of apps have a free trial. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a free trial wall. wall. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, keep that in mind. All right. The next gem is Paolo Golovetti. I'm butchering all these names. Sorry, folks who... <laughs> <laughs> who created these gems, uh, growth consultant at feature on your paywall, use copy that clearly explains the outcomes that your users will get from the paid experience. Don't just promote the features, focus on the benefits and how the users will feel frame things in a way that resonates with your users. Yeah. I mean, we, it's the typical mistake, I guess, of being too feature focused and, and talking about that, uh, particularly on the paywall and, and a lot of companies uh, do that, uh, and I've done that. But if you can figure out kind of the outcome, what what you're selling, and, and the benefits, and, and talk about that instead, it it can have a big impact. And and that's something you you can get by talking to users, asking them, you know, what's the main reason you downloaded the app, or what you know, things like that that you can so that you can reuse messaging copy. Um, and those things those things matter uh, at that old story from a podcast I was listening to uh, from Canva where one of the biggest growth win was, you know, in one of the years was just to change, you know, that copy, that benefit copy, because they, they had misunderstood, you know, the engineers wanted to sell something and, and, and were proud of something. And that's what they put on the, on the paywall. But when they shifted it to what users were looking for, uh, it was, it was a big difference. So everybody's proud of their, of their product, but, Keep the user in mind when you when you frame uh, what they're going to get behind the paywall. Yeah, and th this is where kind of as a fundamental thing, I, I think a lot of people don't spend enough time really understanding what they're selling. You know, what what's the value you're actually creating? And sometimes it's subtle, right? Like, you know, sometimes a fitness app or, or Headspace. This is a great example. I've been subscribed to Headspace for the last year, and I've only meditated like three times. But you know what? Headspace is selling me optionality. I am paying for the option to meditate when I'm ready to meditate. And I'm probably going to cancel. I've been subscribed too long, but it, it it's like selling hope. It's selling this optionality. That's maybe a bad example because I'm not really getting a lot of value. Um, but like I think about this with my weather app is that some of the value of a weather app is that it's a topic of conversation. It's curiosity satisfaction. It's not always just do I wear a raincoat or not? Like there are some weather apps mm. that are just, you know, send you a push notification, wear a raincoat, don't wear a raincoat or whatever. And like, that's one value proposition. That's one thing you're selling when you build a weather app, but what else are you selling? You're selling the experience to just poke around. Like I, I you know, partial to my own weather app and I'll go in there and I'll look at the 24 hour rain totals. And it's just like curiosity satisfaction. Like, you know, how much rain did we have in my neighborhood versus like, you know, two neighborhoods over, it could be like one inch versus, you know, half an inch. And it's satisfying curiosity. And then guess what? Sometimes I talk about that, you know, I tell friends or I talk to the wife and it's like, it's interesting. And so that's something I think about actively with my paywalls, with how I develop the product, with all of those things is that I'm not just selling, do you put a raincoat on or not? So when you're working on your app, and then especially when you're building your paywalls, I think this this gem really gets at that is that you you not only want to focus on those outcomes, but you want to first start by understanding what those outcomes are. 
And you might not even fully understand all the outcomes. And that's where talking to your users and doing surveys and other things we've talked about come into play. But yeah, in the paywall, like it, it's not all about the features. It's not all about the app. It's not all about the product. Like think about the outcomes and talk about it that way. Yeah. And, and just to, to close on that, it's true for the paywall. It's true for your entire onboarding also. So Yeah, that's a, a good one. Yeah, because onboarding is similar. It's like you, <laughs> you're, not, you're not onboarding them to features. Your features. You're onboarding them to outcomes. You're onboarding them to improve their life or, you know, help them be more productive or chat about the weather or whatever. So yeah, think about what you're onboarding them into, not just think about the features of your app. And that gets at the education versus like just showing people how to use your app and onboarding. All right. The next gem is from Andy Carvel, co-founder of Feature. Use abandoned cart type tactics using personalization, discounts, and similar for users that interacted with the paywall by swiping, selecting a price package, et cetera even if they didn't try to start a subscription by hitting the subscribe button. Yeah. I mean, this comes down to, first of all, measurement and, and triggering those events that are going to allow you to, to find those segments of users that were not willing to, to pay. Not right now. They, they did not commit. And, but they showed interest. They downloaded the app. They went through your onboarding. They, they saw your paywall. Uh, maybe they did some actions on the paywall or maybe later in the first experience they they tried to open a, a a paywall feature, uh, you want to be able to know who these people are and, and then you can, you can send them, you know, a CRM offer, uh, or, or a discount. And, and so it, it's pretty simple and you don't want to do it too fast and you don't want to discount too much. Um, but you need that ability, especially when you start growing and having more people in your app to convince, like some people will convert, you know, if you decrease the price by 10%. So why not, why not do that? Yeah, this is another one I hadn't really thought about. So I was reading this gem. I don't, I don't know where which uh, where this came from, but um, I hadn't heard this one specifically. And it really, again, kind of challenges my thinking on how you build out these flows and CRM and other stuff. Because typically, you know, I would think and, you know, talking to a lot of developers, oh, when somebody you know, cancels their free trial, that's when you do a trial cancellation nurture sequence. But this takes it one step further and the web, you know, again, web playbooks have been built out over, you know, a couple decades or more now versus like mobile subscriptions. It feels like we're behind and haven't learned enough from the, the earlier progress on the web. And, you know, I'll go to a website, enter my email, put something in my car and leave. And boy, do they hit me up, you know, and, and there's a reason because it works. And so yeah, I, th I thought this was super insightful is that you should actually be tracking those things. It's like if somebody just X's out of your paywall, yeah, super low intent. But if they're scrolling around, if if you have interactive elements on your paywall that they're actually interacting with, like that signals a level of intent that you should probably come back and nurture. So, yeah, I thought this was a really great one. I'm going to definitely yeah. be uh, stealing this one in, in future conversations. Lots to uh, lots to learn from retail and 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 gaming, and I think gaming also learns a lot from retail. So it's good to branch out, you know, beyond subscription apps because because a lot of people, like you say, have been working on on those kind of things for for a long time. All right, the next gem is from Hannah Parvaz, head of marketing at Uptime. Gifting is a great way to increase the spend ceiling you inherently have with subscriptions. Example, at a previous company, gifting made up about a third of December sales, 
And a lot of these came from existing customers. Yeah. So main challenge with subscriptions, right? It's that uh, high floor, low ceiling, even someone that's, you know, your biggest advocate, if you have just one subscription, that's that's the maximum of money they, they will generate. They might talk to it, you know, talk about it with their, their friends, their family. But if you give them the, off, the opp- opportunity to actually gift whatever you're providing to others, um, then you increase, uh, you increase that ceiling. So this is something to, to think about. Again, I wouldn't discount too much, especially because gifting tends to be uh, non-renewable. Um, but at the right price, you, you want to give that opportunity for people to, to give something at, at you know, Valentine's Day, if it's relevant, at Christmas, at, during Black Friday, anything. Um, so that's, that's more tactical, uh, but it is a, a money-generating uh, idea that, that you can put in place pretty, pretty easily, even if it's with, with workarounds. Yeah, and the, the tactics of this one are tricky because... Like you said, it's hard to gift a renewable subscription because it's, you know, the person gifting is putting it on their credit card, but they're not necessarily, you know, it would be more of kind of a family plan situation if it was, if they intended to keep paying for it. But I have seen this in apps and I've, I've started to see it more and more is that you can have a one-time in-app purchase that gifts to the other person one year of usage. Um, yeah. another little plug revenue cat does actually make this fairly easy because you can associate that with a promotional entitlement where you have a one year promotional entitlement associated with that one time in app purchase. So it can be a way to do it. And, and I thought this was really fun because I've been thinking a ton about that ceiling. You know, if you have a subscriber, they're paying you, uh, you know, 20 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year, even a hundred bucks a year they might be getting hundreds of dollars of value. And one of the ways they can express that if you haven't figured out other ways to let them pay you more, to have a more premium tier, to have other you know, uh, consumables or other in-app purchases in the app, this is a way to do that. It's like if they really love your app and really believe in it, maybe they're willing to pay 50 bucks to give their best friend or a family member or somebody else a year. So yeah, I thought this one was really cool. Yeah, I mean, people really need gift ideas, and if your app makes for a great gift that's in line with uh, what the recipient might might like, it's it's awesome. It's a win win. Now, not to not to divert people out of revenue cat on this one, but like on the simplest way, you can you know set up Shopify and and, and yeah. put that in motion pretty uh, pretty easily. Yeah, that's not a yeah, and um, it depends on what where you're sending the traffic from. So if if it's an email campaign or whatever, I mean, Apple does have all the rules around like you can't send people to the web for payment from within the app. But yeah, I mean, even even if you're not using Revenue Cat, it's not it's not rocket science to do a one time in app purchase and then equivalent make that equivalent to a year of of subscription. Um, so yeah, really really great tip. Yeah. Next gem comes from Patrick Campbell, CEO of Profitwell. Most businesses only ask customers to upgrade to a longer-term plan when they first sign up. The issue is that these customers haven't seen the value of the product yet. You need to ask for the upgrade beyond sign-up. Yeah. So this typical advice that is, you know, drive people towards longer subscription. Uh, So let's say yearly instead of monthly so that you get a higher LTV and, and faster cash flow, but there's not that many people that try to then also upsell people that went in their monthly. So if you're getting a lot of traffic uh, towards your monthly, 
and you know they engage. Uh, and that doesn't have to be you know within the first ten days. It can be after you know the first three months. You can you can essentially hit them up and you know say, hey, if you get early, you're going to save money, and and it's a it's a win win. Yeah. The other thing too is um, as apps grow and get more sophisticated, I think we're we're starting to see more and more bifurcation of plans where you have a a pro plan, an elite plan, a platinum plan, and things like that. And that's another way to potentially think about this is that, you know, maybe the best strategy is to have kind of a lower tier plan. And it doesn't have all your features, but it has enough to to be valuable. And then you think about this relationship as a long-term thing where you're actually nurturing them toward the elite subscription or the platinum subscription or whatever. So yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think it goes along with with so much great advice in the subscription space. Is that is it? You know, a subscription is the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey. And yeah. um, and don't forget that. Yeah, very good point. That the upsell doesn't have to be just duration. It's the easiest one to put in place, especially if you're getting started and you want you don't want the complexity uh, of of the multi tier subscription. But once you have that, or when you're working on that, it you can definitely. Yeah, use the uh, the initial subscription as a, as that entry point. That's a very good point. All right. Well, that was our last gem for the day. Um, this was super fun, Sylvan. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm glad we got we got through them. There's so much to say. Yeah, yeah. Anything you want to share as we wrap up? I know we haven't talked a lot about Babel, but uh, you have any interesting roles you're hiring or uh, anything else you want to share as we wrap up? Yeah, I actually just hired, so maybe there will be a role by the time this is this is there. But um, no, we're we're excited. Uh, check out Babel, of course, if you're looking to to learn a language. Uh, we have some online classes with with teachers now, also, so that you can get your uh, speaking practice in and and actually be able to to learn. Um, and uh, yeah, also check out you know growthgems.co. Uh, sign up for the newsletter and and find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm always happy to to exchange. Uh, I've learned a lot, a lot from the Subclub podcast, from other places also. Um, and I love, you know, chatting one-on-one also to, uh, to get some, some more insights and, and exchange. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll, I'll back that up. I mean, I, I subscribe to the email and follow you on Twitter and follow growth gems on Twitter. And it's, it's an invaluable resource for me to keep on top of everything that's going on. Cause I don't have the kind of time you have to read and watch and listen. Well, yeah, to you're busy. Single. You're busy recording podcasts. I'm busy listening to them. You yeah. know? Like we, we... <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll have you, we'll have you, you back on some time to talk more about uh, Babel. Or, and if, if people enjoy this, let me know if you, if you like this format, you know, we could do this once a year or uh, every six months or something like that. So uh, I have James for years, so that would not be an issue. Yeah. Give us some feedback if you like this format. All right. Thanks, Sylvan. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.